46, beginning at verse 1, we find this. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, I, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons, his grandsons with him, his daughters, his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that once again we can come to look at the life of Joseph. We do so need your spirit to be our guide and teacher, to give us understanding, more than just the knowledge of what you have revealed yourself to us in your word, but to be able to apply it in our lives. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to open the pages of your word, for you are a God who has not only worked in history, but you have given us a record that we can study and we can know you and have the confidence to know that the Spirit is working within our hearts to make us more like your beloved Son through the time in which we spend within his pages. So, Father, speak to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we all pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we're in the midst of uh, the life of Joseph. And as we have seen from the beginning, it's really not a story about Joseph himself. It's a story that continues the life of Jacob and how God was willing to bring Judah into his preeminence of the family. It is a story telling the Hebrew people that God is providentially working through them and their family to bring his plans about and for his glory. And so as you remember of the story of Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. In chapters 44 and 45, we have seen the second greatest picture of forgiveness that we have in the word outside of our Lord dying upon the cross, where Joseph not only forgives his brothers for what they have done, but also reveals himself and is reconciled with them. For he explains to them that the forgiveness that it is there is generated by, by the Lord because the Lord was behind all of the actions that had taken place. So as chapter 45 ends, Joseph's brothers go back to Canaan to tell their father that Joseph is alive and to bring the entire clan to Egypt. And so as we come to our passage here in chapter 46, which is on page 51 of the Pew Bible, if you didn't bring your Pew Bible, we find that Joseph 
is no longer the central character of the next two chapters. The focus is shifting on their father, Jacob. And as we see within the life of Jacob, he is an old, old man. He's 130 years old at this time. It's been 23 years since he has seen his beloved son, Joseph. And as the chapter begins to close, there is one word that really describes what is going on in Jacob's heart. It is one in which he is stunned. He goes from his son being dead for 23 years, now that he is alive. And not only is he alive, but he is running the empire of Egypt. And so after that reality becomes clear, we find that Jacob's heart is just full of emotions and they were running high, that his heart is revived at the end of the chapter. And so, so much so that he wants to go down, or yeah, go down to Egypt and to see his son before he dies. And so chapter 46 is really the grand reunion of Jacob and his son, Joseph. And so that is where we're going to be picking up the story today. And I intended to finish this story, but it looks like we're only going to be hitting the first seven verses. But Jacob is leaving where he grew up and going down to Egypt. And as verse 1 begins to open up, we find that Jacob leaves the promised land. But yet, we also find that he is the troubled patriarch. And so look at verse, uh, verse 1. We find that an Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. It's interesting because immediately within chapter 46, we find Jacob's name changed to Israel, the name that God has given to him, meaning God prevails. So you can see that Jacob is walking with God by Moses giving us his God-changed name, Israel, here. And so he's walking correctly with God. His focus is wanting to please God. And what, was, what is about to transpire is proper and godly. And so then we are told that his family had to take everything. They had to uproot and bring everything as they go down to travel to Egypt. They weren't to leave anything behind. And so they're off. The family, the kids, the grandkids, everybody, they're headed down to Egypt. But it's interesting because as they set off with all that he had, they came to Beersheba. And so it was a grand caravan. Their wagons were full with stuff. There's goats. There's, there's chickens. There's sheep. There's cattle. There's all kinds of things that they're, that they're bringing along. And they stop about 25 miles into their track at the city of, or the village of Beersheba. And immediately, the text um, tells us that probably their, um, their family did not know what was taking place. But I envisioned that because Jacob is a very old man of 130 years, that he probably did whatever he wanted, and he didn't necessarily tell everyone that we're, that we're stopping here, but just when they got there, we're stopping. And when you stop at a place, you had to set up camp. You had to set up your tents and set up this and park the, park the sheep and park the cattle. And so it was a major undertaking. And so they came to the city of Beersheba. And within the minds of, of probably the family is, why are we stopping so soon? It's a long track. 
But uh, but Moses tells us the reason why, that Jacob stopped there to offer sacrifices. Now, Beersheba was the southernmost area within Canaan. And so they went from about 25 miles, went to the southernmost place, and stopped. Because beyond Beersheba was the wilderness. So why was this place so important? Why did Jacob want to stop? Because we find that if you go backwards, that this was a very significant place for his family. Back in Genesis chapter 21, it was in Beersheba that Abraham planted a um, teramis tree and calls upon the name of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 20, 22, um, Abraham actually lives there for a while and would have worshipped God within that one area. In Genesis chapter 26, his father Isaac had his servants dig a well there, and the Lord appears to Isaac so much so that he builds an altar there to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So Beersheba was a place important to the family, and it was a place of stopping. It was a place of worship and to call upon the Lord. So Jacob purposely and intentionally stops here to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And it's interesting because it really gives us a glimpse of what was going on in Jacob's heart at this time and, the, and why the need to offer sacrifices. And three things, I believe, sort of stands out here. First of all, we see that he, had an ad, that he was a sinner in need of pardon. When we first see that he stops here, he's a sinner in need of pardon. Why? Because he wants to bring forth sacrifices. Every time previously in which the patriarchs would sacrifice to the Lord, it was a physical display that their lives were sinful and the need to confess their sin. And so they acknowledged their hope of forgiveness of a better one-day sacrifice that would come, and that better sacrifice would be the Lamb of God who would one day take away the sins of the world. And so he knew as he reviewed most of his life that he didn't necessarily always have the proper walk, but he needed to acknowledge where he fell short in his constant need of forgiveness. So he stops and he offers sacrifices. Doesn't say how many, but he offers sacrifices as an expression of his obedience and dependence to God. And so he was a sinner in need of, of pardon. Secondly, he was a believer in need of worship. He stops because he needed to worship God for who he is. A believer always needs to worship God. One just doesn't come and to slay an animal and then take the blood and offer it upon the altar. It's more than that. It's part of a worship experience that they do. The asking of forgiveness, the acknowledging of the greatness and sovereignty of God for who he is, what he has done, and his continual faithfulness to them. That's worship. He had to sacrifice, and he was in need of worship. It's all about the focus on God. It's very similar to the words that David wrote in Psalm 18, in which would have filled Jacob's mind in a similar way, where David writes, I love you, Lord, 
you are my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And then down in verse 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. And so Jacob stopped. He had need of worshiping because of who the Lord is. The Lord is his strength. He is the rock. He is unmovable. He will deliver us out of our difficult circumstances. He's the refuge when the storms of life come our way. He's the stronghold when the enemies seem to surround us. He hears when we cry out for help, and he will never leave us or forsake us. And so he needs to worship God. But thirdly, his attitude here was one in which he was a pilgrim in need of direction. He comes to worship the Lord because he was a, um, in, he was a sinner. He was one in, in which he needed to worship. But also he needed to ask the Lord for guidance on what to do. And I believe as these verses sort of transpire, we begin to see the attitude of his heart. It was a heart that was deeply troubled because he needed a proper direction from the Lord to make sure that his decisions that he was making was, wasn't a rash decision. It wasn't an offense to a holy God, but he wanted a desire to be placed in a, in a place of obedience, not in a place of disobedience before God. So as he, come, as he comes to worship, he would have prayed to God about some things that were making his heart very, very troubled. And we're going to see that as things begin to unfold. And as John read this morning, Paul speaks of this very thing. In Philippians chapter 4, in verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, through prayer, in supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be made known to God. And then the result is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so he didn't have those verses directly, but Jacob would have understood the concept behind it. That when, when things come up, when our hearts are troubled, when we're needing direction, when things are heavy upon our shoulders, we go to God and there's no reason for us to be anxious. But through prayer, with thanksgiving, God will be, not only begin to work, but give us a peace that our decisions, that our situations would be correct and it will surpass all comprehension which guards our hearts and guards our minds. Those things are pretty much universal. And so he goes as a pilgrim in need of direction. But as these verses begin to unfold, I believe we begin to get a glimpse of what was troubling his heart. Because Jacob, on one hand, has never been outside or south of Beersheba before. He has never been outside of the Holy Land. 
Beyond Beersheba laid a vast desert of rocks and of sand, and it would, it would be another 250 miles before the lush green um, areas of Egypt would begin. And so that lied be, uh, before them. And so the deepest longing of his heart was to see his son before he died. But yet certain things sort of plagued his heart, sort of began to be in the back of his mind. Because had he made a decision based solely on emotions, Joseph is alive, I need to go see him. Or did he need to reevaluate things to put God into the equation, if you would, to make sure that his decision was proper. And so Jacob's heart was troubled. And as we begin to look at this passage, there are at least four areas in which Jacob's heart was troubled. And when you begin to sort of look at these different layers, one would be heavy enough, but then you bring another one and another one. And I believe it troubled Jacob's heart. And so the first area, which I believe that Jacob's heart would have been troubled, was because he was leaving the land which was promised by God. He was leaving the promised land which was promised to his grandfather Abraham, and now he was going, um, going back into the land of Egypt. Over in Genesis 28, you don't have to turn there, I have think it's going to pop up. But in Genesis chapter 28, we find this. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants or seed will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then in verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until what I have done, what I have promised. And so now... That promise was given to him early on in his life by God, and now he's leaving that land. So the turmoil in his heart is, should I leave this land and see my son, or should I stay in the land that God has promised and not see him? It's, it's a conundrum for him. It's been 23 years since he has seen his beloved son, Joseph. Should he stay in the land? That's what God has promised. This is for his people and his descendants. And now he's taken everybody to Egypt. And so should he go? And so it weighed heavily upon him. He knows that this is a one-way trip. There was no round-trip ticket to bring him back. He's already old. If he entered Egypt... He knew that he would probably be buried outside of the promised land, and that would bother him because the family had a, fa a family plot in the promised land that was purchased by Abraham. He's buried there. Isaac's buried there. And Jacob was, uh, was thinking, if I go down, I would not be buried there, and it bothered him. Because the family burial plot was a direct symbol of being in the land, and that's where he wanted to be buried. So he was troubled that he was leaving the promised land. 
Secondly, Jacob's heart would have been troubled because Egypt was a very pagan place. Throughout Scripture, Egypt is always portrayed as and symbolized as the opposite of the promised land. It was a, pl- a place of great earthly power and wealth, but it also was a place of oppression, a place of spiritual bondage, a place where evil behavior was just rampant throughout the culture. And so it would be like yourself wanting to uproot your family. And let's say you're living down in the Bible Belt, and you take your family, go across country, and you wind up in downtown Las Vegas, right on this trip. And you go, what in the world did I just do? That's what's in the back of Jacob's mind. He was worrying about how much of that pagan culture would rub off on his family and the future generations. How much that just being there in that culture would turn their hearts from God. Because Egypt had hundreds of gods in which Pharaoh was one of them. And so there was a heaviness upon his heart. How much would Egypt affect his people? Not only that, they had been told by God on a number of occasions not to marry outside the people of faith. And so going into a pagan culture, it would deeply have troubled Jacob because it would influence his entire family. But thirdly, I think that Jacob's heart would have been troubled because of past warnings not to go down into Egypt. God has, God has told um, his people not to go down there. Over in Genesis chapter 26, his father Isaac was told not to go down to Egypt. And uh, it says that the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, don't go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. And so Jacob is there thinking I'm leaving the promised land. He told my father, don't go down there. Am I doing the right decision? Jacob did not want to be in a place of disobedience for making a quick decision. On one hand, as chapter 45 ends, his decision was sort of based on emotions. Joseph is alive. I need to see him before I die. Every father would. If you found out that your dead son is actually alive, you'll want to see him for one last time. But yet he's troubled. Should he go? And yet, fourthly, I think there's one more aspect that would have troubled Jacob's mind. And it's fourthly, that there, would, that there would be prophesied future hardship for God's people. Future hardship um, was foretold by God that there would be a place in which God people would be oppressed and it would be a place of great hardship. In Genesis chapter 15, it says this, that God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. So they're going to a land that's not theirs. And they will be enslaved. Oh, that's even worse. And oppressed for 400 years. Am I taking my family and their children 
and their children's children and their children's children's children to a place in which they will be oppressed, enslaved, hardship outside of the land of promise. And so this would have weighed heavily on his mind. Should he go? And that's why he needed to stop at Beersheba. It was a place to worship. He needed to offer sacrifices. He needed to acknowledge God for who he is and what he has done. And he needed to get direction on where and what he should do next. And so he comes to God, not to demand, but to seek whether his journey to Egypt was truly the plan of God. And so he goes and he stops. He stops everyone and he offers sacrifices seeking direction. It's exactly what James 4 and verse 8 says. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. And then in verse 10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He didn't know what to do. Should I go? So he goes and tries to draw near to God so God will hear his cry and give him direction. And so it was a long time. Jacob was a young man since the last time God spoke to him. And since that time, his heart has been far away from the Lord. The Lord has been silent, but he didn't want the Lord to be silent any longer to give him clarity. And so he gives sacrifices to God. How often do we have those kinds of of troubling situations in our own life to make decisions? And so often we don't have God as part of the equation. How often do we just base our decisions off of our emotions without going into consulting God? And so we need to bring these things before, before God as we shall see, and God will hear. And so God responds to Jacob in verse 2. Look what it says. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And so God is going to speak to him. And within the Bible, when, when God speaks to someone in a dream, they're asleep. And when God speaks to someone in, in, in a vision, they're, they're awake. And we find here that it's in the plural, so I'm not sure or we're not given the entire situation, but there are visions of the night. And so here God is speaking to Jacob, and it's interesting, it is, this is not the first time that God has spoken to Jacob in Jacob's life. There would be six times in which God physically speaks to Jacob. Whether or not it's through a theophany, through uh, the angel of, of the Lord, or through a dream, or through a vision, or six, uh, six times. I think it may be, though I couldn't confirm it, this may be one of the most times in which God has spoken to one of his people over a consistent period of time. And so each time in which God speaks to Jacob, he refers back to the promises given to Abraham, given to Isaac concerning the land, the seed, and the blessing. It's interesting to note, just as a footnote, this is going to be the last time God speaks to anybody in the book of Genesis. And it's not going to be until another 400 years until God speaks again 
to one of the sons of Israel, to Moses. And so God is going to have a break. But what God says here is very important. Now, we generally think that when God speaks, it happens all the time. But in Scripture, it's, it's actually a rarity. God rarely speaks to anyone. That's why it's a supernatural event. And God speaks to Jacob here. And in, in, in a few short sentences, there's a wealth of information that he communicates to him. And so look at the next part of that verse. The first thing that, that God says is that God calls Jacob by name. And I think that's important. And not only does he calls him by name, he uses his name twice. And when you begin to read, especially within the Old Testament, when something is repeated, it is there for emphasis. It's to emphasize and to bring about attention that something is important, that the occasion is being talked about is um, elevated. And so there's a double calling of Jacob taking, uh, taking place here. And so we're to under understand that it's significant and that God is responding. It's interesting because we actually find this double calling throughout Scripture. In Genesis chapter 22, God double calls Abraham, where he cries out, Abraham, Abraham, as he's about to slay his son Isaac. And, Isaac, uh, and uh, Abraham says, here am I. And God says, don't lay a hand on the boy. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, within the burning, burning bush, God calls out to Moses, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. You probably know the, uh, the story in 1 Samuel chapter 3 where young Samuel was being called by God. And God calls Samuel a number of times. And then the final time he goes, Samuel, Samuel. There's an emphasis here that God had a special part for Samuel to play. We also see this within the New Testament. Our Lord calls out to Martha, 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 as they were being um, anxious um, because um, she sees uh, her sister Mary sitting at uh, Jesus' feet and not helping. And then in uh, Luke chapter 22, we find our Lord um, speaking to Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you sifted like wheat. Paul gets, gets called out in, in Acts 9, Saul, Saul. And even our, our Lord calls out a city. In Matthew chapter 23, we find Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And then even when our Lord was on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God. There's a specialness there that draws attention to it. But through it all, we get to see that God is being very personal to where he calls Jacob here by name. It shows that God is being personal to Jacob to show his love and his care that he has. He just doesn't say, hey, you, uh, with a very um, indifferent manner. He calls him by name. And he repeats this twice to show his ultimate care, which demonstrates for us that God is a personal God. For just about every religion, God is a distant God. He's out there somewhere. He may have created things, but he just lets things go. But when you begin to ponder the great truth that God knows his children by name, he knows every detail, every situation, everything that takes place, from the large events to the small ones. And we begin to realize that nothing is too small for God. 
We may think we're small in God's presence. We may think that when you look at the body of Christ, you know, I'm that little toenail on, on that pinky toe, and that's just me. But we're not. We're all important. God knows you by name. And that's very important. He knows every aspect about your life. God is not ever too busy for you. God takes full interest in, in everything that is going on, and to think anything different from that is wrong. God cares for each one of his children the same way. And so he knows Jacob by name, and he treats us the same way. There is, um, he fully knows us. John chapter 10, that great passage that we read before. Uh, in John chapter 10, uh, we find our Lord saying this. Not only is he the door um, of, um, of the sheep, but he's also the great shepherd. In verse 2, he says that he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hears his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. Down in verse 9 of John chapter 10, he goes on to say, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And he will go out, he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that may have life, that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And so what a great purpose that is. God knows us. Christ knows us by name. He calls, he works, he gives, gives them eternal life. None of them will perish. None of them will be snatched out of his hand. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that because we sort of whittle ourselves down. We don't think that God really cares about us like he does to someone who is more in the spotlight, who is more visible within the body of Christ. He knows you by name. He cares about your situation. But secondly, we find in verse 3 that God not only um, speaks to Jacob's heart, but he comforts him. God comforts Jacob's heart. He goes on to say in the next part of the verse, do not be afraid. Why would God say do not be afraid unless one has fear in their heart? And so I think that um, when God ever speaks to you, that would bring about an inner fear just, just by nature, but also he, uh, fear for the future, fear of what is weighing him down. Don't be afraid. Jacob, I am here. Don't have fear. Don't have anxiety. Push those uncertainties away. And so Jake, God is going to remind Jacob that fear should not be a part of what they do. It's exactly what God told Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 1, that the word of the God came to Abraham in a vision. Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be great. 
Even the, um, uh, in Isaiah chapter 41 in verse 10, God tells the prophet Isaiah, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be anxious about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you surely. I will help you. I will surely uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so God does not want his people to be afraid. God wants his people to come to him and to get those things resolved by leaving things with him. But yet there's, there are some more areas in, in which God brings about comfort, not just not to be afraid, but God is going to comfort Jacob by reminding Jacob for who he is. Go back to the beginning of the verse. It says that he said, I am God, or El, the mighty, the mighty one. And then he goes on to say, the God of your father, the Elohim of your father. So the Hebrew there is I am El, that's the, that's the word for God, meaning almighty. But now we have Elohim, which is, a, which is a majestic plural, which not only hints at the Trinity, but also uh, I am the utmost almighty one of your father. And so he speaks to Jacob and he says that there is no one greater than me. Why? I am God. I am the same God of your father. There's no one greater. I am the one who created everything. There is nothing impossible with me. I am God because of who I am. You can trust me. I haven't forgotten you. I know your situation. And so he reminds Jacob for who he is. I'm the one who has spoken to you before and five other times. I've been faithful. And you can trust me. So he, he reminds Jacob of, of who he is. But secondly, he gives Jacob comfort by affirm, reaffirming the covenant he made with him earlier. I am the God of your father. I am the same God who spoke to Isaac. And the implications also there, I'm the same God who spoke to your grandfather. I'm the one who you wrestled with. I'm the same God. I haven't changed. I love you the same way. I love your, uh, your, um, your, your forefathers the same way. And he maintains the same kind of promises that he has had before. And so God is telling them that the promises that I have made before, they're still there. That should bring about comfort for you. He hasn't changed. He's still trustworthy. The same promise that he made earlier are still in effect. And so by reaffirming the covenant with Jacob, he knows as the situation will begin to close that he's going to be making the right decision. But thirdly, we also see that he gives Jacob comfort by giving him direction. He gives him direction. Verse 3, I am the God. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. God is telling Jacob that it is his will for him to go. Go, you have my full blessing. Bring them, leave the promised land, bring them down to there. It's all part of my providential plan that I have. And so God tells him to go. He gives him direction. He gives him an open door and to say, go, walk through it through faith. 
And God does, does, does that for us in a lot of different ways, though he doesn't do it verbally to us, though sometimes we may want him to do that. But God will give us open doors to say, things will be fine. Take the step. Go. It's part of my direction that I have for you. Sometimes God's timetable time may not be the same as ours, but, but God is there to work, and he will show us whatever open door or closed door that they may be. And so he gives Jacob assurance by giving him direction. Fourthly, we find in the last part of the verse, he gives Jacob reassurance by giving Jacob a promise. It's a reiteration of the promise again. He says, for I will make you a great nation there. That has been at the, uh, at the heart of the Abrahamic covenant going back to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going, you're going to be a great people. You're going to bless the nations. You will become a great nation. And in 200 years, there's still around 100 people, just under 100 people. And so that greatness hasn't really sort of kicked in yet. But it will. God is going to take them down into Egypt to have them leave Egypt as a great nation. And so there is a plan by God, by protecting them, by being with them. Even though it will be difficult, there is a plan, and they will become a great nation. And that gives him comfort. Because if he had a concern, if I go down, what will happen? We won't be a great nation God says, you will. I will fulfill the unconditional promises that I have uh, given you. And I will give you a land. And I will continue to give you a seed. And I will continue to be a blessing to you. And yet, fifthly, we find the last area in which he comforts Jacob by affirming that he will be with him. Verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt. The Hebrew there is in the intensive, meaning I myself will go down. God's not going to send some kind of subordinate angel. He's not going to set up some kind of pro proxy. I myself will be, be with you and will be with your children every step of the way. I will be with you. And so he needed to hear that. David is going to have uh, a um, similar set of words when he writes Psalm 23, how the Lord is our shepherd. In verse 4, it says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And so God is there. He is the shepherd. He is the great protector. He is the great provider. He is the great restorer. He is the great leader. And he will be with them the entire time while you go and be in Egypt. And so he wants to, he wants to give Jacob assurance that he will be with them. And you won't be alone, that he will be with you. Sixthly, uh, we, we find this, that he will also assure him that he will bring him back into the land. In uh, the next part of verse 4, I will surely bring you up again. God knows that Jacob loved the promised land. And I believe that he had a concern about his body to be buried in the promised land. 
But yet, um, in Genesis chapter 47, we find so much so that he has Joseph swear that, Joseph, make sure that they bury me with my fathers. In verse 30, when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt, bear me in the burial place. And he said, I will do so as you have. And he said, swear to me. And he swore. He didn't want to stay there. Why? Because it wasn't the land of promise. And so, uh, and so he gives Jacob comfort to know that I will bring you out again. Because it was a symbol for him to be buried in the family plot of the faithfulness that God had. And he wanted to be there with his uh, grandfather and with his father. And so lastly, there's one more thing that God assures Jacob, and that's found in the last part of verse 4, by stating that Joseph will be there for him. uh, Verse 4 closes, and Joseph will close your eyes. God tells Jacob that you're going to die there, but Joseph is going to be at your side and to be with you as you go from this life into the next. These would be great words of comfort to Jacob because when he was ready to die, he would know that Joseph would not be um, outside of him again. (coughs) Excuse me a sec. And so God is telling telling Jacob that I am there with you. I am there to give you assurance to know that everything that you are doing is correct. Don't trust in, um, in your own thinking. Lean on me and not your own understanding. So God reassures Jacob that things will be fine for him to bring his entire family to Egypt and that God will work things out. And so we have the, uh, the next part, the, the third part of our story found in verses 5 and 6. Jace, uh, Jacob leaves Beersheba. Verse 5, it says, And Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and their wagons, which Pharaoh had, had sent him. And it's, and it's interesting, because what we find here is that they leave, but it doesn't tell us the when. And if I know Jacob, his heart would have been at the same place where it was at the end of chapter 45, where he finally realizes the reality that his son is alive in his heart, and at the end of verse 27, was revived. He got to go. So I'm sure at first light, he is there, all right, everybody get up, we got to go. People would have been saying, but we just got here, we got to go. I got to see my son. And then he would tell them, God spoke to me. We got to go. And so there is a revived aspect within him, and they take everything. And in verse 6, their livestock, their property, uh, which they had acquired, the sons and grandsons. And the picture here is more than just a description of what they took. It's that they took everything. They didn't leave someone behind to be a proxy to say, well, uh, Jacob actually owns this land. They're just not around anymore. They take everything with them. It shows that Jacob had complete obedience to the, to the will of God. God said to go, and he went. 
and God, uh, and they take everything, and he took, leaving nothing behind. And so he takes his family down in a temporary move, but the temporary move is going to take 430 years for them to return, plus 70, back into the land. In in, uh, verses 8 through 27, which we shall look at next week, there is a numbering of his family that will take place. But we'll talk more about why that's really important. But as we sort of look in the few moments that we have left, this is a very important passage for Jacob, but also for us. Because it wasn't necessary that Jacob was in sin, and he needed to go to God's word to find the answer, though we look for answers in our decision-making. And we go to godly counsel. Yeah, that's, that's important. But there are just times to where we just go to God to find out, Lord, what would you have me do? We get troubled. We get fearful. I think there are so many times within, within God's family that we can put on a good face, but if people actually knew the in, inside of our hearts, it's full of fear. It's full of concern. We feel weighed down. Each one of our lives are filled with major life events. Graduating school, going to college, finding a career, getting married, having children, switching jobs, salvation of loved ones. Things can begin to layer upon our hearts and give us troubled hearts, just like Jacob. And we look for direction. And so many times we don't go to God. He's almost like the last place where we go. But God wants us to go to them. God wants us to present our hearts as a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable, acceptable to him. We're bringing everything to, to the Lord without worry or anxiousness, with thanksgiving. And God will give us a peace that will surpass all understanding. And so many people can relate to a troubled heart. We all can. But here within, within this one passage we get to see what Jacob sees, that we need to remember who God is, that he speaks to us in his word, that we are reminded what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 11, in verse 28, where he, where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We also need to remember we're not to be afraid. He is always there. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We're to remember what God's promises are and go to the book and find, find them because they are there and we can claim them. We're to remember that he has what he has clearly done for us in in our life, to take us from where we were lost in our sin and work within our our lives to make us more like Christ. Remember that, that he is still active. We're to remember that he will give us directions when we go to him, that he will open up the right door. And then lastly, we're to remember 
that we are blood-washed children of God who have been saved by grace, chosen before the foundation of the world, and he cares for you. And so he cared for Jacob, calls him by name. Our Lord calls his sheep by name, and he knows us. And so whatever situation that we may be in, whatever direction that we're trying to find, God knows and he will work. And so as we begin to come to the table this morning, that really begs the question, do you know the Savior who died on the cross for your sin? Because this is a time for God's people who knows that they have been saved by by grace, that they can come and to partake, that they can see that it is a picture of him dying upon the cross for the forgiveness of, of our sins, that his body was broken for us. And so it is a celebration for God's people to re- remember that he is always there caring for us like he did with Jacob, that we're not to be afraid, that he will be there with us until the end. We, that he will be there when we even arrive on the other side. Come, if you've never accepted Christ as Savior, see your sin, repent from your sin, and trust in him. For he will take that heavy load that you are uh, bearing, and he will give you rest. And he will know you, and he will call you by name. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that in a few short verses, it seems like it doesn't say all that much, but I believe it really gives us the attitude of Jacob's heart on why he needs to offer sacrifices because his decisions could have been made rashly without you even being a part of that equation. And so, Father, work within our hearts. And so, Father, as we begin to partake at the table, we thank you that it is a time in in which we can confess our sins, get our life straight, so as we leave this place, we are determined that we will give you glory in everything that we say and do, in every aspect, not just on one day of the week, but on all seven days of the week. But, Father, most of all, we thank you for you dying on the cross for us. For when we were most unlovable, you chose to love us and you died for us, proving that you are the shepherd that laid down his life for his own. And so, Father, thank you that we can partake and celebrate at the table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.